Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days. 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up and it got me thinking about Backtable. We are getting good practical knowledge from our podcast, but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need. And that's what we're doing with Backtable Plus. Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts. And we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top. Yeah. In addition to getting this information in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with CME if I made this happen. There are three years worth of CME credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com and click the tab that says courses. And that's it. We also made a mobile app and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's app store as well. Couple more things. From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription, a great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Backtable Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top. This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think the way to sum it up for me is the decision of whether to treat a post-thrombotic is fairly easy, right? It's technical. Are they going to comply? Is there inflow? Can I get across? You know, elemental questions. Nivel, procedure is easy. The decision making couldn't be more difficult. Is this patient, frequently young, going to be better off with a permanent prosthetic for the next several decades of their life? And that's a serious question to answer. And so I'm like Steve, I take it very, very seriously. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the show, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Comprehensive solutions for enhanced venous care. From pulmonary embolism prevention to deep venous obstruction. At Cook Medical, they understand achieving optimal patient outcomes requires precise tools and unwavering support. Their Zilver Vena, Venus Stent, Triforce Crossing Catheter, and line of IVC filters and retrieval sets are designed to meet your clinical needs. They provide the solutions you need to navigate the complexity of deep venous disease. Contact your Cook rep today to learn more. Visit the website or follow Cook Vascular on Twitter or LinkedIn. And now back to the show. Today, we're going to be talking about iliofemoral venous stenting. We think this topic will be a nice complement to some of our other uh, venous-focused episodes. To help us with this topic, we have a return speaker, Dr. Stephen Abramowitz, Chair of Vascular Surgery for MedStar Health in D.C. And we also have Dr. Kush Desai, Vascular and Interventional Radiologist out of Northwestern. Steve Kush, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Steve, welcome back. 
I looked up the last episode that I did with you, episode 59, endovascular treatment of DVT, March of 2020, different times. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a that was a very long time ago. I know, I know. But, uh, you know, there's some evergreen content there. All right, so still talking venous disease. Kush, first time to the show, will you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your practice? I'm an interventional radiologist at Northwestern in Chicago. I would say that the majority of my practice is deep venous intervention, which initially started as complex filter retrieval and then really kind of changed into complex cable and iliofemoral reconstruction and also treating female pelvic venous disease. So that takes up the majority of my practice and not only clinical, but research time. And then, you know, I'm also a general IR, so do all the fun stuff that general IR does. And um, I couldn't be more thrilled, uh, though I don't think I could have predicted that my career would go this way. Very nice. Steve, will you uh, give a brief rundown of your practice and how it kind of falls into uh, your vein work? Yeah. So I'm a vascular surgeon by training and I work at a tertiary care facility in MedStar Washington Hospital Center and Georgetown University Hospital. And I would say about 60% of my practice right now is deep venous work with a a primary focus on post-thrombotic syndrome and acute TVT. Very nice. All right, guys. So let's just jump into it. Venous disease, iliofemoral venous disease. Why do we care? Is this really that big of a problem? And we have anticoagulation? Kush, start with you. Yeah, you know, we actually have level one evidence, so to speak. We have RCT data that shows that we should care about iliofemoral venous obstructive disease because those are the patients that are going to have pretty significant quality of life impact. And unlike other vascular diseases, this is a, this is a disease that affects pretty much all cross-sections of society. You know, you think of the typical arterial patient, and Steve could probably speak to this better than I can, they're usually sixth, seventh, eighth decade of life. And with this disease process, we're starting even in teenagers, but more commonly third, fourth, and fifth decade of life. And so the time horizon for the symptoms to really impact patients is highly significant. And, you know, we have RCT data to show on the acute DVT side that patients that are that are appropriate procedural candidates should be treated when they have iliofemoral DVT with at least moderate to severe symptoms. We're now in the midst of generating really significant data for post-thrombotic syndrome. And, you know, those are the patients that sort of quote, missed their opportunity when they had an acute DVT. And um, but we're, we've come a long way in actually getting those patients to a better place. And so it's an exciting time for sure. Even in um, your career, Kush, like since you started, how much have you seen like how we approach and think about venous disease change? I mean, like even just like a couple of years ago, it seems like it's just this is like a really kind of exciting area to be as far as like venous treatment. I mean, when I came into practice in 2013, it was um, all off-label devices. Yeah. Everything was off-label. And now not only do we have on-label thrombectomy devices, of which there's no shortage of and they really are quite efficient at removing iliofemoral um, and iliocable occlusive thrombus. But we have on-label stents. And, you know, we have currently, I believe, uh, four on the market and then one in clinical trial and one that's just finished clinical trial for which we're awaiting the data. So it's an exciting time. I mean, not all, for those of us that have been practicing this area, we recognize the promise for patients and uh, the growth of this field. We knew it was there. And our industry partners and the scientific community has clearly seen it. And I really just don't see it stopping anytime soon. That's great. Steve, kicking it over to you. Can you talk about how these patients typically present either in the hospital or into your outpatient clinic? What are kind of the referral patterns that plug these patients in with uh, your system, like vascular? 
It's really interesting. The the acute DVT presentation pathway is remarkably variable, and it's been pretty surprising for me the more that I scratch at it and and work with our interventional radiology team here. We have a really close relationship with Sarah Sabri, Nora Tabori, working closely with them on a comprehensive algorithm, and we divide patients pretty evenly by medical record number. And it started off thinking that most patients were going to come through the ER, but the, the reality is most patients aren't being diagnosed in the ER. Uh, we're finding that a lot of patients are coming from primary care offices where they're sent to an outpatient radiology center for uh, diagnostic imaging because the suspicion is low or it's not necessarily something that's high in terms of uh, someone's desire to sit for 12 hours in a major medical center emergency room in the middle of DC. And even more and more, we're seeing patients come through urgent care centers. And so patients who come from urgent care, they're told, and a lot of times, you know, you're okay. Just take a take an oral anticoagulation agent. You can have your elective visit in, you know, a few days, call a vascular surgeon on Monday or, or something like that. So really getting a good handle on what drives patients to come to a hospital ER versus what drives patients to go to an outpatient center versus what drives patients to then take an oral anticoagulation agent, maybe feel better and not show up for a few months where they have fully formed post-thrombotic syndrome or show up while they're two, three weeks after uh, being initiated on an oral anticoagulation agent is super challenging. And what I would say is what drives patients to make a decision as to how to reach out to a vascular surgeon or an interventional cardiologist or an interventional radiologist is highly variable based on where they have their first point of contact with the healthcare system. And actually, I couldn't agree more with that. Just to pick up on that thread, we're seeing, we all thought it would be the ER. And certainly the ER is a, a significant source of these patients, but it really comes from all over the place. It's actually kind of sobering how many practitioners these patients touch. And so the, the matter of whether you get the appropriate care is unfortunately a function of where you are and what practitioner you're seeing and who they're connected to. Um, and I think that's what Steve uh, was alluding to as well. And so for us in the expert community, so to speak, it means that we need to pollinate. We need to get out. We need to make sure that people are aware that there are experts throughout their area and that we're willing to help and we're willing to take on these challenges and manage these patients. We're not trying to pass off any work to them. We'll manage the anticoagulation and ensure they get appropriate consultation as needed. So yeah, they really do come from all over. I, I couldn't agree with Kush more. And I think one of the challenges that we experience often is this idea of who's the expert. And we're really focused on data that's been generated to show the benefit of early intervention for patients with acute DVT. There are plenty of people out there with access to excellent data that can point to that data to justify for anticoagulation alone. And so I think that creating an environment where you're able to acknowledge others' expertise in this field and then say, you know, it's not just we have a widget or a tool that we want to use to treat TVT because we're proceduralists. We actually think that there's a downstream benefit is a really important conversation to have because I have a lot of patients who come who are very confused and trust their primary care doc or trust their hematologist and, um, you know, feel like we're the new player in their life and don't necessarily understand why we're saying something that may be contradictory to something that they've worked with for a really long period of time. That gets like an interesting point is like Kush kind of mentioned, like, how do you pollinate? But like, how do you message that to other referring docs? Not only like let them know what we do and what we can offer and how we'll take ownership of that patient, but for other docs that may be a little bit more resistant to actually giving up the ownership, 
Have you guys, in informing your programs, have you kind of made inroads on these issues? Kush, start with you. Yeah. So I, I give the talk frequently, not only to other BNS practitioners, but those in the primary care community. This all started, starting with the QDBT, as we have a 50% chance of developing post-thrombotic syndrome. That's what RCT data shows it. And so it's a little bit of a difficult proposition to tell a practitioner that, okay, well, flip of a coin chance of developing something and we're going to put your patient in the ICU and they're going to get lytics through their leg. And there's considerable cost of that. There's some risk to that, et cetera, et cetera. Probably not life-threatening risk if done correctly, but risk nonetheless. And we've come a long way with technologies. And I would argue that the majority of practitioners that are doing significant volume in DBT are probably still, are probably now doing single session thrombectomy. So the value proposition is there. The second thing I would say is I very clearly show the downstream effects in the patients that we are going to treat. So if you don't treat the iliofemoral DBT patient when you have that chance early on, what might happen? What has a good chance of happening? Better than 50%, I would argue. Those patients are going to go on to develop significant venous hypertension, ambulatory venous hypertension. They're going to develop they're, they're going to develop pain, venous claudication. They're going to develop, you know, unrelenting edema, significant skin changes. And worst case scenario, they're going to develop a wound. And that problem then is a lifelong problem. And that is a patient that maybe only needed anticoagulation for six months if it was a provoked DVT after an intervention. But now it's post-thrombotic and it's a reconstruction. And now you're talking potential for lifelong anticoagulation, which carries its own risks. So you when you when you lay all those things out, particularly to the referral community, they kind of see like, okay, well, I don't want to have to deal with that patient for, for sure. a long time. And so maybe I should listen to this guy. Okay. Steve, similar question. Like, how do you like your messaging, not just your messaging, like what you tell referring docs, but what does your outreach look like? And is it just within MedStar or do you guys even get out into the community? You know, because it's a big tertiary referral center, and I assume there's a lot of players who are not in the MedStar system. Yeah, I think part of the conversation and the messaging that I've really found to be successful is looking at the data that a lot of people point to for a lack of efficacy and showing how that data, when you look beyond the one-year or two-year data that got the first splash that people were really excited about, how it's actually trended out over five and 10 years. And we start to see post-thrombotic syndrome really spike an increase in its frequency at that five, 10 year mark. And you look at some of the trials that have been done around open vein theory. But, you know, more importantly, when I look at those patients with post thrombotic syndrome that's moderate or severe in nature, we have not yet developed excellent statistical or clinical tools for predicting who they're going to be. And so it's similar to, you know, having the conversation around treating an asymptomatic, asymptomatic carotid artery lesion, right? What's your number needed to treat to prevent one stroke? And in this instance, uh, as Kush was implying, when you're talking to people, you may not be saying, hey, listen, I can promise this in this one patient, I will be making the fundamental groundbreaking dis difference in their life. But in aggregate, because I can't tell you who is going to have a significant quality of life impairment as a result of post-thrombotic syndrome, that we've moved the mark in terms of the safety and efficacy, morbidity and mortality of these procedures and our ability to deliver the care quickly and efficiently in a manner that I think gets most people home feeling better faster, that there's there's an upfront benefit that you may not say has enough level one clinical evidence behind it, but there's also a downstream benefit in that we know that these procedures can help prevent post-traumatic syndrome 
and it may be variable in its impact, but for the patient who is that one who's the, the you know, out of the, the nine needed to treat to get that one benefit, it makes a significant difference in their life. Okay. I feel like one thing that would resonate, I think a lot of these referring docs have seen that one out of nine patient who has terrible venous disease, whether it develops into a wound or just a longstanding chronic edema. I mean, I'm kind of with Kush on this is I feel like they've seen those patients. There's going to be very, very difficult patients to manage. And it's a lifelong process after that, but with not a ton of great options. I think we beat referral patterns to death, but work up. So let's just take it out of the inpatient realm and, and just say someone happens to be in your clinic. Can you talk about what that workup looks like just first time you walk in the door? Kush, we can start with you. Yeah. Typically, if they're coming to my office, they're not coming with an acute DVT. It's typically a post-thrombotic case. And so what the workup means is what it consists of, I would say, is you start with Obviously, what are the symptom burdens? We have numerous scales, both the Volalta and the uh, Venus Clinical Severity Score, to inform how severe the symptoms are. And we actually have a little bit of data to guide us on which patients are the most likely to benefit. The next thing you're going to do is look at your imaging. And what that means at different places is, is based on local practice patterns, uh, preferences, and expertise, really. We do a lot of axial imaging at Northwestern that consists of usually CT venography to assess the iliofemoral segment and then a duplex to look at what the inflow looks like, as well as um, whether there's a sort of concomitant superficial venous disease. The reason we want to look at that is because if the patients are presenting with symptoms that we think are primarily due to the superficial venous disease, there's really no downside in trying to treat that first and then see if we get the outcome we want. Frequently, you don't. But numerous times over my career, it's been like, you treat the problem that's really bothering the patient. Don't necessarily treat the problem that you're the expert in, right? Sometimes it's better to send that to somebody that does it, or if you do it, you do it. So, you know, history taking, your imaging, and then you synthesize a plan. But I would say the next part for me, and probably the most important part after those two things, is ensure that you have a very clear, defined partnership with the patient. They have to know what to expect and they have to know their part in the process, in the journey. Are they going to comply with their blood thinners? Are they going to comply with any additional stuff? You know, a lot of these patients have uh, lymphedema, flebal lymphedema. Are they going to comply with their compression, with pneumatic compression devices at home if they need them? All of those things. Because if you, if they're not going to, I would argue, you know, if a patient's not going to take their blood thinners, for example, probably not someone you should be super keen on treating because it's going to be all risk and really no benefit from that procedure, my opinion. Okay. Steve, can you uh, either add to that or you can just talk about like how your workup may either differ from Cush's or... Yeah, it's interesting. I, I would say in our system right now, about 20% of the acute DVTs that I treat actually come in through the office. And the interesting thing is they aren't people who show up with the expectation of being treated. Uh, and this isn't to say that someone walks in my office door and I automatically give them an operating room time. But I think that this has to do with a lot of the ultrasound protocols that exist out there. And Kush and I have talked about this uh, ad nauseum. One of the things that generally tends to happen is people will get labeled as femoral popliteal DVT. And someone just threw a probe on them as part of a DVT algorithm that they're following and uh, protocol. And it'll show, you know, it'll be labeled as femoral DVT. But what it doesn't really show is that the common femoral is occlusive. And there's likely iliac extension. And so there's a good number of people who show up who are still profoundly symptomatic 
after two weeks of anticoagulation who were told just, hey, go to the vascular surgeon, see what they say, see what they can offer. And our ultrasound protocol is a little bit more, I would say, comprehensive in the management of acute TVT in our vascular lab. And we're looking at the external iliac. And for those patients, we're finding that there is significant extension. And so part of the education that we, I think, have to do is to encourage freestanding vascular labs, freestanding ultrasound facilities, and the point of contact caregivers to ask that next level question, which is, if this is a DVT and you're saying it's femoral, did you look at the iliac? Can we look at the iliac? And I think that that would give us that patient pipeline more immediately to intervention as opposed to that delayed patient presentation in our office. So one of the things I wanted to ask you guys is whenever you're seeing a patient and kind of teasing apart venous hypertension symptoms from like other concurrent symptoms that may be going on, can you talk about either the difficulty or the tools that you kind of use or your thought process and how to tease apart like lymphedema versus venous hypertension and which is which? You know, this really strikes at, you know, what I said before, which is managing expectations. If I have a swollen leg, that waxes and wanes, but the features are there. I can see the malleoli, for example. There's no stemmer sign. They don't have the hump on the dorsum of their foot. They don't have prototypical cylindrical edema. They're not probably a, a, a significant lymphedema patient. By distinction, if I have a post-thrombotic, and this is frequent, iliocable or iliofemoral obstruction that has significant edema that is I mean, literally cylindrical, you can't see the ankles, you got the big hump on the dorsum of their foot, like floridly positive stemmers, the, the, the discussion's different. I am not going to improve your swelling significantly. Maybe in the thigh, probably not below the knee. And what other symptoms do you have? Okay, stasis ulceration, we can get that better. Pain, venous claudication, absolutely we can get that better. Edema, and I've shown the cases a couple times, I believe Steve's seen them you're disappointed frequently. And so that's upfront discussion. And I even tell them, you're probably going to see a very short-term improvement of the edema, meaning like I'll do the procedure the week, maybe two weeks after the procedure, you're going to notice a big difference. It's going to come back. I hope it doesn't, but I fear I'm probably going to be right. It's going to come back. And that's the shift in the Sterling principle and between the lymphangion and the venous side and all that kind of stuff. So You're really looking for prototypical signs of lymphedema in the patient that has clear venous obstruction to help tease apart what's lymphatic, what's venous. Steve, do you want to talk about anything about the the imaging that you guys do, or is it very similar to what Kush said, like DVT study, potentially uh, superficial venous reflux study, and then CTV? Yeah, very similar. We generally tend to gravitate towards CT venography in our institution and indirect CT venography, primarily because getting MR is very challenging in our area. And I think it is very valuable for uh, delineating post-traumatic syndrome or central compressive disorders. And, you know, I I will say on the acute side, even this week, unfortunately, we diagnosed a, a pancreatic cancer and what's likely an ovarian cancer and its presenting symptom was a DVT. So if you have any suspicion as to what the potential underlying cause of the DVT may be, it's, it's important to get some additional imaging. Before we uh, move on too far from like the clinic visit, and Kush kind of talked about it, like kind of that upfront discussion about the patient's role, but can we talk about a little bit more about some of the conservative treatments that you may initiate during the clinic visit? Like, so say they're not, you know, they haven't been booked for either the OR, the cath lab, but some of the things you have the patient do just leaving the hospital, either medication regimens that you tune up or compression therapy. Steve, let's start with you. 
I'm a big believer in compression therapy, not for the treatment of post-thrombotic syndrome or the management or prevention thereof, but mostly because it makes people feel better. And uh, you, you see a lot of patients with their early onset edema after they're lying flat in the hospital, they seem decompressed, they go home, they're up on their feet, and then their swelling comes back and it comes back in a very painful fashion. So some sort of compressive therapy, whether it's pneumatic, non-pneumatic, mechanical, um, whether it's simply a wrap or a stocking, anything that the patient will, will use, I find to be very beneficial. Generally, on the order of medications, I would prefer anoxaparin for the acute DVT patient because I do think that there are additional anti-inflammatory side effects and patients generally, I think, have a better response earlier on while on anoxaparin. But there are some barriers. It's prohibitive in terms of cost sometimes, in terms of insurance coverage, as well as early access. And you know, it's painful. I have a lot of patients who don't like injecting themselves. So the anticoagulation agent that someone will take is the best anticoagulation agent <laughs> in my mind. Um, and the other things that I'll tell people to do, and I don't know, Kush, if you've ever done this, but we do a lot of water walking recommendations in the summer months, especially if people have pools for people who want to stay active, but they're afraid to go and get back and running and their legs swollen and heavy. Resistance water walking has been very beneficial for them. And those are some of the early things we do to help people feel better, even if they do undergo intervention. I agree on the anticoagulation. And I'll just add that same modifier to compression. Any compression that a patient wears is better than no compression. So if they'll put on their uh, the famous sock brand that sells one to you and then donates one, if they put on those compression stockings or one from a mail order service uh, and not like the medical grade hose, I'm fine with it, right? Compliance is key. And then I agree on the anticoagulation. The only other thing I would add is venoactives, certainly none really FDA approved, but the European colleagues have used them with great success. And for those that can take them and can tolerate them, they can be really, really helpful. But it, it's a subset of patients. It's not all patients. Hold on. What was that, Kush? Venoactives. Oh, I don't, would, can you uh, expand a little bit? Like diosmin, contoxifiline. I don't know how often you use them, Steve, but you know, you have patients, we, we've seen these patients that have complex wounds that you reconstruct them, you treat their axial reflux, you close the ulcer bed and they're still just trying to get the wound closed. And sometimes those, uh, those venoactives can help. And actually this is where I'm sure we'll get to this at some point, but multidisciplinary care. If you have wound providers that you really trust, I mean, they are worth their weight in gold. They're just so helpful in, in managing these patients because these patients are going to probably be coming back and forth for many, many years. Yeah, I agree. We, I generally only reserve the use of toxifiolin for patients who have very difficult to manage venous asis ulcers. Uh, but otherwise, I, I agree. I, you know, it's interesting. There's all the data that should be coming out soon from dexterity about the use of perivenous anti-inflammatory agents in mitigating the future risk of post-traumatic syndrome. That could be an entirely separate conversation. But I, you know, and the other reason I bring this up is because I have not used oral anti-inflammatories in conjunction with anticoagulation, like a medrol dose pack or high-dose NSAIDs. And I, I have heard of people who do do that, but I, I don't think the data is there and I don't think the benefit to the patient is there. So I haven't adopted any additional pharmacologic treatment for the patients beyond the anticoagulation. Okay. All right. Did we miss anything else with clinic or are we ready to talk a little bit procedure stuff? Procedure. All right. Procedure it is. All right, Steve, let's start with you. Uh, day of procedure. I'll just 
kind of open-ended, like what do you do to get your patient ready day of the procedure in terms of talking to them, consent, room setup, whatever? What's top of mind there? So whether it's acute DVT, post-robotic syndrome, um, and I very, very rarely do nipple intervention, but regardless, if I think the patient's going to get a stent, one of the big things that I emphasize with the patient in the preoperative conversation is the importance of that medication adherence in the post-intervention period. And I am aggressive because I think that it is very challenging to deal with an occluded stent. So at minimum, I remind the patients that they will be on an antiplatelet and an anticoagulation agent if they weren't on one prior to the placement of their stent. And then depending upon whether or not it's post-traumatic syndrome or the patient has some sort of other hematologic disorder, that could be lifelong, but minimum of six months. Uh, the other thing I really remind patients of is that there can be just some discomfort, both during the procedure when ballooning and doing vessel prep, but then also afterwards. I would say the vast majority of people who experience lower back discomfort, spasms, uh, cramping, that generally resolves in 24 to 48 hours. I have had the occasional outlier with usually severe compression or severe post-thrombotic syndrome who's, you know, four to six weeks of Valium or diazepam therapy with their spasms. So I do remind them of that immediately in the perioperative period. And then the importance of walking, staying hydrated and communicating if there are any sudden changes with regards to lower extremities, pain or swelling after a stent is placed. Okay. Kush, same question. Over to you. Yeah. You know, um, it's reviewing the clinic note. It's reviewing the imaging, ensuring I know my access site, ensuring what tools I need. And this is where I think axial imaging is really helpful. There's an obstructed filter, there's an obstructed stent, which I'm frankly seeing more and more of right now. What am I going to need to get through that obstructed stent? And making sure all those tools are available and sort of I'm prepared to take on that case. And then, yeah, you know, in addition to the expectation setting, it's the, the post-management that's important. Regular follow-up, see these patients in a month, six months, a year, and then at some point biannually, but that's usually after two years, ensuring compliance with the anticoagulation. I probably prescribe anticoagulants to 60% of my patients. The other 40% are either with the hematologist or their primary care physician. I will say that, and I'm sure Steve has this concern as well, if you're a referral practice and a lot of your patients are coming from outside of your area, I've learned this the hard way. You really need a willing partner on the other end that's going to be the patient's advocate and make sure that they're going to take care of the patient when they go back. Because, I mean, you, you simply can't do it from a distance. It's too hard. You don't have a regular touch point with them. So if they don't have that, that's something I insist is established before we go through the procedure. All right. So a little bit more on the technical side, though, as far as, and because you can make up kind of whatever patient, but to illustrate whether you're going to go prone or just talk, or prone supine. And also I wanted you to talk about both of you guys, like, where you might get access and what you're thinking, like, and why you're picking those locations. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of different ways to do this. A lot of my vascular surgery colleagues are doing mid-thigh femoral access. Actually, my IR colleagues too, a lot of them do mid-thigh femoral access. And I think the way I was, quote, raised and the way I've done procedures is if it's a post-thrombotic and there's an inflow lesion, particularly the common femoral vein, I do it under prone access. And I access typically Small saphenous, if it's not a posterior thigh extension, a Giacomini vein, if it's a, there's a saphenopopliteal junction, I like the small saphenous vein because primarily if we know that the active access is traumatic in and of itself, particularly with some of the larger sheaths that some of these devices require, if I'm going to bag a vein, might as well bag the vein that people close for a living. After that, posterior tibial vein, and then begrudgingly popliteal vein after that. 
you know, I will say that access management with closure and, and all that, that's probably where we need to come the furthest with Venus. Um, we have Venus closure devices. I think those need to be studied in our interventions more and more, particularly with the level of anticoagulation that we're using because access site complications not frequently talked about, but they do occur. Okay. Steve, kind of same question as far as like access sites and patient positioning. How about you? What's your thought process there? So my practice is predominantly based in the hospital environment and in the operating room. So uh, I would say nearly 100% of my cases are done with our anesthesia team. We are pretty much 100% supine. And it's because we have some very strict policies about who can be proned and what type of sedation they can get when they are proned. I believe in frog legging and getting access to the popliteal vein. I do know that there are people who do uh, mid-thigh femoral vein access. I think for post-thrombotic patients in particular, it can be challenging to truly assess your inflow if you are sticking in the mid-thigh femoral vein. And for most of my patients who do have trophic skin changes due to venous hypertension, uh, and if they really want to have a good idea of the patency of the femoral vein or the collateralization to the profunda vein, sticking in the pop or some of the vessels that were named earlier, I think is really important. So, you know, I generally tend to be on a frog-legged uh, supine approach. Okay. Any need for IJ access or is that an option should you have to go to that for adjunct? Definitely much easier to get IJ access when you're supine already, but it's something that I usually am reserving for cases uh, of severe post-thrombotic syndrome, concomitant caval occlusive work, usually related to the need for retrieving an IVC filter that may be long-standing and down. But it is, it is nice to be able to snare the wires through and through and have a real great body floss to work on that rail sometimes. Okay. Were you going to say something, Kush? Yeah, I was just going to say, I, you know, IJ access in my prone patients, let's say it's an atresia or a filter retrieval. If it's a filter retrieval and it's going to be complex, I usually turn them supine at some point. If it's um, an atresia and it's just to give myself wire and through and through, I get IJ access on the cart before they go into a prone view. And then I have the micropuncture sheath exposed so that we can do it with them in the prone view. Um, okay. But yeah, it's absolutely an adjunctive access for me. Got it, got it. Neither one of you guys said it, uh, but I kind of just assumed it. As far as anticoagulation that they come in on, all patients stay on anticoagulation before, during, and of course after, right? No need to stop anticoagulation. Actually, what I typically do is have them transition to low molecular weight heparin um, if they're on some other anticoagulant just largely because of the anti-inflammatory effect associated with heparinoids. And then I supplement on the table with unfractionated heparin, provided it's not a hit patient. Got it. Steve, similar? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's actually just get into the procedure. So you have access. Steve, can you kind of talk about just relevant anatomy for this area? So for you, let, let's say you have pop access and then, and you can invent whatever patient like best illustrates the points here. I think for me, relevant anatomy for either an acute or a post-thrombotic patient really starts with the femoral and profunda confluence. So you start with your ascending venogram. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, I usually use the trochanter as an anatomic landmark, a radiographic landmark, but you really want to make sure you understand where the profunda vein and where the femoral vein have that confluence. Mark it out, give yourself that landmark because that's going to let you really determine what your actual inflow is, especially for the post thrombotic patient. There are plenty of times I see a venogram and I'm guilty of it too for presentation sake, or I'll shoot my dye and then I'm like, ah, oh, my sheath's occlusive and I'll bolus back with a, a syringe of heparinized saline and everything flushes through and it looks beautiful. But really seeing how much dye comes in or is diluted by washout from the profunda vein, if you aren't seeing a pacification of the profunda vein in and of itself, 
that's a good marker for profundity. And then really thinking about where the inguinal ligament is, its potential impact on what your IVUS images may look like on the external iliac vein and femoral vein as it crosses under the inguinal ligament and the curvature of the pelvis, depending on whether you have your right or the left. Both of those are enough of a variation on the right and the left for the anatomic course of the iliac vasculature that it changes how your stent is going to lie, where you want the end of your stents or your stent overlap zones to be. And so where I choose to overlap stents, let's say if it's a right-sided lesion versus left-sided lesion is a little bit different. And then, you know, the, the last kind of one I'll throw out there before uh, kicking it to Kush is focusing on L4, L5, S1 and getting some familiarity with where you actually think the crossover point is for the common iliac vein is really important because there were a lot of times that I, I think early on and even now I'll cross and I'm like, I made it. And, you know, and the reality is I'm, <laughs> I'm in some collateral uh, and I'm looking at the screen. And I'm like, oh God, I'm actually, that's pretty much like S1. That's not really an L5, L4, you know, target crossover zone. So, you know, those bony landmarks can be important as well when there's complete occlusion. All right. Yep. Same question, Kush. Anything to add on uh, landmarks or anatomy? Uh, I'm with Steve on all of this. The profunda is absolutely the key. Femoral vein, my opinion, nice to have. Profunda, you don't have it, you're in trouble. And I agree with what he said about the dye patterns and ensuring that it's washing out. And this is where I think venography, particularly in the day and age of IBIS, and we all love IBIS, it's, it's important, but venography is undersold. I mean, the dynamic information of flow is venographic. And that's an art that comes with doing these procedures and understanding like, boy, that's not going to work. I got to try and fix it or that's just going to be, that's going to be just fine. And then I agree with them completely on the bony landmarks. Okay. All right, Kush. So uh, take us from anatomy to, and like I said, same thing, whatever case helps illustrate the, the points the best about kind of how you approach, whether it be crossing or just go ahead. Yep. So, you know, if we're talking about a post-thrombotic patient, what you're looking for is you're looking for that thin linear string. You've probably heard that term string sign from myself and many others over the years. And what that is, is if it's thin linear, it looks like gristle and it's coming off of a, a name vessel that you know you're in. So if you're in the common femoral vein, mid femoral head, you might even see a saphenofemoral junction swinging off medially. And then you see this thin linear strand going up in the pelvis and then a bunch of snaky, windy collaterals. That's your true lumen. And so you know exactly where you're going to target your crossing catheters, your crossing sets, your wires, all that kind of stuff. That saves you a lot of time. What I would say is if you see it, don't just say that's it and go with, go with your catheter and your wire. Use your obliques because sometimes they can be obscured. It's not quite the right oblique. And if you're an AP and, you know, this is something we all heard in radiology residencies, one view is no view, two views is to you. You got to go in a couple different obliques to find exactly the best one that's going to show you the way across. And so that's what you're looking for to cross. And then patience. Don't just keep pushing the wire because these are delicate vessels in the sense that you can form a big loop and end up out. And I'm not worried about bleeding. It is going to be really hard to get back in and go in the right direction possible, but it'll slow you down for sure. So for me, it's perching my crossing catheter, my crossing set there, and then taking that wire and just spinning and drilling all the way forward until you get across. Okay. Same question. The only thing I'm going to add is give us a little bit about like what tools you use to cross. Yeah, workhorse generally is going to be a glide wire and a stiff support catheter. Thinking about more complex crossings, I really believe in as complex a support system as possible. So if I'm working from the pop and I have a 16 or 11 French sheath in there, 
The next thing is I'm telescoping in along eight, you know, along 10, through that along six, along five. People use Triforce with great success. We kind of build our own, but um, I have used it and it does work well. We've used anything from a tip set, metal cannulas, a Chiba needle. So there are a lot of different tools out there, the stiffer your system gets. But what I would tell you is when you feel like you're reaching for your second or your third line tool, that's when you really want to remember that I didn't have such great adages or, or aph aphorisms about imaging because I was a vascular surgeon. But that's when I'm like, okay, now I'm going to cone beam. Now I'm going to use IVIS. Now I really want to double down on my additional imaging as well. So the further you move away from glide wire catheter, the more imaging views and axial uh, images you want to generate. And on the topic of crossing, uh, you know, one thing we talked about crossing primarily native occlusions and I mean, Triforce has taken a pretty central role with the stiff glad wire in my practice. And I completely agree with triaxial, quadraxial, whatever support you need. It's all good. I think when you start talking about stent occlusions, boy, it's a totally different story. In those cases, they're incredibly difficult. The material inside the stent, even though you have you know, sort of a rail to go across, it couldn't be more difficult because you'll end up outside of the stent. You're all over the place. You have no directionality. People have used transeptal needles. I think we heard about tip sets. People have used radio frequency wires. I certainly have used that. All of those things are great. All of those things come with an elevated risk profile. So you just, you have to know where you can get away with things and where you can't. And I would say the compression site is where you can't because you'll end up, or you could end up in the artery and it could be a potentially catastrophic complication. One thing I've actually used more recently that's been pretty successful is transeptal sheaths, bidirectional sheaths. And inside of that, you know, it comes with an introducer. And then what I do inside of that is I use a transeptal needle, but not with the needle exposed. The needle is just slightly back inside of the taper dilator, the introducer, but it stiffens the whole thing. And it's designed to intercalate or it's designed to curve with the needle inside of it. And so it's a really stiff system. And then inside of a stent, you can use that to auger your way through actually pretty well. I gotta say intercalate is now gonna be my favorite word. And I plan on using it multiple times in any future <laughs> back table broadcast. And actually we'll probably title the episode intercalate. I hope I used it correctly then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so we kind of talked about this in the setting of like post-thrombotic syndrome. Does like, how does this, how does your approach change if you're in a non-thrombotic patient, Steve? So I have very strict interventional rules for intervening on a nivel patient. And that being said, one of the things I think that's really important when doing your nivel assessment is understanding the positioning of your patient and their fluid status and where you want your stent to land so that it actually has a decent amount of apposition with a segment of venous anatomy so that it is not going to migrate or in worst case embolize, which is just beyond migration. It's ending up in the right side of the heart. So I definitely keep those patients very well hydrated. If I don't think that they're hydrated, I will bolus them aggressively before entering into the interventional space. I will ask them to Valsalva, limited anesthesia uh, or conscious sedation at that point so they can follow the commands. And I'm, I'm much more aggressive about really understanding what the diameter of the proximal landing zone is. Okay. Kush, similar. You were kind of nodding your head there. Yeah. I mean, very well said. I think the way to sum it up for me is the decision of whether to treat a post-thrombotic is fairly easy, right? It's technical. Are they going to comply? Is there inflow? Can I get across? You know, 
elemental questions. Nivel, procedure's easy. The decision-making couldn't be more difficult. Is this patient, frequently young, going to be better off with a permanent prosthetic for the next several decades of their life? And that's a serious question to answer. And so I'm like Steve. I take it very, very seriously. Fair point. And we could probably do a whole another couple of podcasts on that. So, all right. So we'll keep it simple. Ivis is great. Use Ivis on every case, most cases, Kush. Every case, but for different reasons. Non-thrombotics, diagnosis, and for sizing, right? Diagnosis according to, I subscribe to the video trial, the secondary sub-analysis for the diameter stenosis. And usually it's not an eye test. Frankly, it's pancaked and fixed. It's not going to vary with Valsalva. In post-thrombotics, it's not for the diagnosis. The diagnosis is not in question. In post-thrombotics, it's about more complex things, more qualitative things, I should say. In flow, ensuring the lesion is bridged, ensuring that the stent is fully expanded, all of those things. But yes, every case. All right. Steve, same question. Anything to add on IVIS? Yeah, IVIS is incredibly important. And I think that the more you use IVIS, the more you realize how important it is in terms of not just sizing for your stent placement, but also it gives you so much other information, uh, so much other great information. Even if you're not using some sort of Doppler flow assessment, you can use an assessment of Rouleau or speckling within the vein to look for stasis for a lack of respiratory variation. It, it's like that scene from The Devil Wears Prada, right? Like you, you may call it blue, but it's really cerulean. And once you understand that you're looking at the multiple shades of Ivis, yeah, it really gives you some insight into, into, into the world. Cerulean has replaced intercalate. I was about to say, I think we just actually have a new podcast title here. All right, good. Well said. Um, so let's get to scenting. So you've, you've imaged in every way that you feel is like satisfied that you have a good evaluation of the lesion. We can talk about it a couple of different ways. Let's start with landing zones first. Like where do you want to land the stent and what are you thinking about as far as contour, overlapping segments, those kind of things? Kush? Yeah. So for non-thrombotics, there really is no value in placing a short stent. Full disclosure, my name's on the meta-analysis um, systematic review that showed I'm not the primary author, but I did contribute that short and small, meaning less than 14 diameter stents have a high risk of migration, right? And so the one thing that we know is that nivels have extraordinarily high patency rates, right? That's been shown across a variety of practice settings, a variety of anticoagulation regimens through numerous ID trials, high 90s, right? So, and you know that there's variability in approach. And so likely they're all going to stay open. Patency is not the issue. The issue is keeping it in place. And so you can place, I personally place it around the curve. If you place it, the stent in a nivel ending in the hollow of the pelvis, meaning the deep portion of the external iliac vein in the curve, if you're looking at it in, you know, a sagittal or lateral plane, at the C, right at the apex of the C, stents can erode through. I've actually had to intervene on several of those to try and recanalize them. So you turn a, a nivel patient that may be questionable indication into a post-thrombotic patient, which is not good. So extended around the curve, I find that 120, if I'm doing a nivel patient, is usually Goldilocks just right in terms of length in the majority of patients or longer if you need to. Post-thrombotics overlap above the inguinal ligament. You don't want your overlap anywhere near the femoral head or the superior pubic ramus. That's where you end up getting more of your fracture. And that's where there's been some engineering work that shows that when you overlap two open-celled stents, that segment acts like a closed cell. And closed cells can tend to fracture. So you'd rather put that in an adynamic portion of the vein. So that's going to be above the inguinal ligament. 
and then extend to the inflow. So if it's post-thrombotic and you know your common femoral is not in good shape, extend down to the profunda inflow, but not across it. Don't jail it. Very little reason. Actually, I should say no reason to extend into the femoral vein that I can think of. Very limited reasons to extend into the profunda orifice, and that's a, very much a salvage case. Probably once or twice in my career, I've done that. All right, Steve. Same kind of question, like over to you. Like um, what you're thinking in terms of landing zone, stint sizing. Yeah, I very much agree with Kush. The couple things I would just say, in addition to think about, especially for those patients, if you're treating somebody with a nibble, is that you don't want to necessarily size to the most dilated or pre-stenotic dilated segment of vein. Think about what your area of compression is and then where you want that stent to land. Uh, again, focusing not landing that stent in the base of the pelvis because that dilated segment will begin to remodel over time. And if you bring that patient back ever or you get a CTV or an MRV, you're not going to see a free-floating vein and you know a 14-millimeter stent and a, and a 20-millimeter venous aneurysm. It'll definitely remodel down around whatever structure you put in place. Sizing-wise, can you talk a little bit about what you use for sizing and kind of talk your, about how you pick exactly a diameter stent that you're going to lay down? Um, Steve? So I'll start with, I think, one of the harder ones, which is the post-thrombotic patient. And generally, it's really challenging. Sometimes you'll have a very healthy contralateral side, and I have no qualms about sticking and ivising and getting a general idea for what the patient's anatomy naturally would have been. But then again, that's not the post-thrombotic side that you're treating. And so you really have to then think about your inflow. So one of the things I would highlight is that if I have a patient who maybe has 16 millimeter or 14 millimeter native iliac veins on the contralateral side to intervention, if I assess the inflow and it, it looks like if I put a 14 millimeter or 16 millimeter vein stent in there, the inflow is really only going to support a 10 or a 12. I have no problems making it a 10 or a 12 millimeter stent for the entirety of the treated segment because I would rather place the stent in that supports the inflow as opposed to putting in an overly sized stent that is likely to have IST or instant thrombosis over time as a result of poor inflow and, and, and sluggish flow rates. So that's generally my thought process on the PTS side. On the nibble side, generally sizing for the segment of vein that I'm landing the stent in, plus or minus a few millimeters. Okay. Kush, to kick it back over to you, the PTS side, I kind of want to hear your opinions on sizing it for inflow. Yeah, I would say um, I'm a little bit different on that. I will say that post-thrombotic sizing is, it's very much operator judgment, right? And so there's no great guideline if you have a totally normal segment. So it's post-thrombotic, very focal, but EIV is good. It's just a CIV issue, size to EIV. But that's not the majority of cases. Majority of cases, it's, it's the CFV through the entire iliac is trashed. And so in those cases, dealer's choice. Personally, with on-label stents in most people that are our size or average size, I think a 14 is great. And then if I'm extending below the ligament at 12, some people do 14 all the way down below the ligament. If it's a larger individual, maybe a 16 and a 14, never more than two millimeter difference between your iliac limb and a common femoral limb. So that's for post-thrombotics. For non-thrombotics, I take the average diameter of the anchoring segment in the EIV. And I whatever that average diameter is, usually there's a good nomogram. The vast majority of patients, honestly, are going to be a 14 or a 16 millimeter stent. Okay. Um, all right. So you've, you've laid down the stent. Can we, can we get down to specifics that we're talking about? You know, some places you go, you have limited access to what you have on the shelf, but 
if you have the full gamut of equipment, do you guys want to get into specifics about what you like and maybe in what scenarios you like them or what you don't like and why you avoid it? So I think that there, you know, Kush made reference to the fact that there are a variety of sets available on the market in the U.S. right now, and there are some more that are coming. I think it's very easy to put stents in your hand and squeeze them in two dimensions and feel like you have a complete understanding of the differences in the biomechanics of these stents. Uh, and what I would say is there are so many other factors that go into the years of intense engineering behind these stents that very few of us can even comprehend. And so there's not only is there crush resistance, but there's radial force, which is different than crush resistance. There's flexibility and there's kind of the torqueability of the stent or its ability to take a curve and to what degree you can take a curve without deformation. So whatever stent you choose, I think that if you have access to all of the stents at any given moment, think about all of those different engineering qualities and come up with the stent that you think is best for each scenario. And so if you want to focus on flexibility, find the stent that you think is the most flexible. If you want to focus on crush resistance because you're dealing with malignant obstruction or errant orthopedic device, you know, maybe you want to be focusing on crush resistance. And if you want to think about radial force because you're dealing with something that's post-thrombotic and um, there's an intense amount of scar tissue, then think about radial force. But, uh, you know, so maybe I'm skirting the, the question, but hopefully that gives some insight into how I think about the different stents and their applicability throughout different patient populations. All right, Kush, you want to pick up the mantle there? <laughs> it's a difficult question to directly sure. answer because, I'll, and I'll tell you why. Everything Steve said, I absolutely agree with. The data that we have from four trials, really similar. The really similar outcomes, right? And so it really comes down to if you're going to pick a different scent for a different purpose, flexibility, particularly fatigue resistance, all those kind of things for comfort and all that kind of stuff. It comes down to your preference on that. It really does. I have used all of them. I've had good outcomes with all of them. That's possible. So I think it comes down to what you're comfortable with. Okay. Fair statement. So one of the things I wanted to touch on, and this is a good point as any to get to it, and, and Kush has kind of referenced it a couple of times, patients that get sent to you that have already been intervened upon, stents have been placed. What do you see people getting wrong? Like, is there any advice that people can take away, operators who aren't doing these for greater than 50% of their practice, but sometimes like as a general IR doc, you're kind of filling different roles in something that may be only 10% of your practice or less than that. Can you talk about some of the things where if you want to do good work with this, but what are some of the things like avoid this screw up and you'll, if they end up getting sent to a tertiary referral center, you haven't closed some doors for your patient? Kush. Yeah, I'll say that be sure of your plan. And if there's any uncertainties in your, in your plan, I'll tell you that the Venus community, in my experience, is incredibly giving of their time. Just reach out to someone, ask questions. There are no such things as bad or stupid questions, so to speak. Just ask, right? Because the problem is, is once the prosthetic has been placed, you're committed. And I tell this to patients that come for stent reduce to me. I say, look, I'm not working on a blank slate. I'm just not. And so we're sort of stuck with what you got and let's see if we can fix it. And sometimes you, you can't, you really can't. I mean, crossing the profunda, jailing it. It's like, okay, I'm sorry. I can't fix that. Steve, any advice to uh, those with just not the same high volume that you guys may have? I think that if it doesn't look right, it, it's not like you have an ischemic leg or you know someone who's actively hemorrhaging. So if it doesn't look like, and you have a question and 
I completely agree with what Kush said. This community is not cutthroat. No one's out to get you or say, I gotcha. Everybody recognizes that all of us had a paucity of Venus exposure in our training. And unless you have really focused on making this a large percentage of your practice, you may not see the one in a million so that don't cross that threshold. The, the patient's not going to die. You can bring him back for a venogram the next day. And even if you said, geez, I just spent seven and a half hours crossing this thing. I can't believe I'm not going to do something. Balloon it. I promise you, you can bring him back in a few weeks and you'll cross with maybe six and a half hours of time. Because the real thing is the mistakes that get made are usually because someone felt something wasn't right in their gut, didn't know what they were looking at, and uh, kind of committed the, the faux pas or the unintentional error. And that could be not recognizing that there was a septation in the common femoral and I've seen the stent getting deployed and all of a sudden the profundas out. Not necessarily recognizing that they're not using IVIS and they're going by bony landmarks and they're not recognizing how far that their stent has encroached onto the contralateral wall of the IVC. And so these are all like little things, but they all lead to failures and they lead to very challenging failures to address. All right. So follow up. So the patient has been stented. We're going to call it a success. Venogram looks good. Kush, what does it look like day of the procedure and post-care as far as anticoagulation to compression that they go home on? What's it look like? Yeah. So we'll just break it up, non-thrombotics. And then I think you could really lump acutes and posts kind of in the immediate post-care the same way. Non-thrombotics, I don't anticoagulate them. Just don't. Don't need to. Haven't seen a difference. And again, Seeing the large number of patients that have been treated across a number of IDE trials and like shockingly similar outcomes, probably don't need to anticoagulate. And some groups have done some work on that. But I fully understand some people are not comfortable with that, so they do it. And then, of course, all the supportive care with compression, et cetera, depending upon what you treated that non-thrombotic for. On the acute and post-thrombotic side, low molecular heparin because of the pleiotrophic anti-inflammatory and anticoagulant effect. And then um, compression. I wrap the leg afterwards, and then we see them, um, particularly with post-thrombotics, I usually suture the exocyte, close, have them come back early the following week for a suture removal and, and a site check. Okay. Any imaging? Uh, do you have it scheduled? Like, what's their imaging interval? Yeah, so the first imaging typically is at one month. I know some people do it earlier. Um, I think there's no issue with that. In my practice, I've been okay at one month. Occasionally, you'll hear, like, some troubling signs that got better and it got worse again and you're worried about rethrombosis. But at one month, typically a CT venogram. And then for the long, long-term imaging, we try and get duplex. The only thing that limits duplex imaging is a is body habitus. Steve, same question. I, I think the only difference that I would highlight in terms of my follow-up algorithm that may be slightly different than Kush's is I don't I don't place a suture. And so all of my patients get a compressive wrap. Uh, like I said, 90% of my patients are uh, accessed via the popliteal vein. And so I can, I, I put a, a you know, two-layer compressive wrap on. It goes up to the thigh. I have them keep it on for a day or two. Uh, they get an SCD when they're in the holding area. And uh, we have a very aggressive surveillance algorithm where we're seeing the patients every three months with duplex or CTV, uh, depending on what was done in their first year. I'm not getting a CTV every three months, but... Uh, sure. At least one CTV, maybe the six-month mark and a year if they had a full iliocaval reconstruction or a very challenging post-thrombotic uh, reconstruction or an agenesis reconstruction and really putting them into that follow-up algorithm. And I think one of the important things that I tell my patients is that they know their body best. The hard thing about post-thrombotic syndrome is that it is variable. You can have a good day and a bad day, and that doesn't mean anything's different in your stents. But if you have enough bad days in a row and you were having good days, 
come back sooner. Don't wait. Don't sit on it. Because again, some IST is much more easy to manage uh, than, than a fully thrombosed reconstruction. And you know, we have no qualms about telling our aortic patients or our PAD patients to come back at very regular intervals. I think people should not have any qualms about having venous patients come back at similar intervals as well. Very well said. Agree with that. All right. Final thoughts. Start with Steve. Go ahead. Anything like you just thought like burning desire, what we didn't tackle, maybe a, a paper or something that could catapult someone to being the next Kush Desai or Stephen Abramowitz? Uh, I, I think one of the things I am very excited about is as people get more and more interested in venous stenting in post-thrombotic disease, we are seeing a rapid evolution in the type of data we're generating. And so uh, very much looking forward to a lot of the work that's coming out from many, many different people that's focusing on propensity matching, AI, uh, finding different ways of bucketing our patients, looking at all the trial data that's been done, meta-analyses, Delphi consensus. These are all great things that are going to help all of us enhance our practice and really understand what we can do to best treat venous patients across the board. All right, Kush, same question. Final thoughts? It's an exciting time to be a venous practitioner. We're Gen 1 on just about everything, our understanding, our devices, our techniques. And so the sky really is a limit. We're not talking about iterations of, you know, the fifth generation of an atherectomy catheter, for example. We're, we're really at the beginning. And so it's frontier living and it's exciting. And with that comes the responsibility of those that, you know, really have made this uh, central to their careers to make sure that future generations benefit not only the patients, but practitioners benefit from the work that we're doing um, and that we're, hopefully we're doing responsibly. All right. Well said. All right. I'll let uh, you two guys uh, get going. Thank you very much. I know it was a Friday evening and a, a big ask. Um, just for the audience, uh, so you know, Kush actually has an arrangement. He's already dressed in streets and it's like Friday evening. Steve is actually at work and I'm still in scrubs. So that just tells you the sad state of affairs of me and Steve and how things are going for Kush Desai. <laughs> yeah, right. No, <laughs> the whiskey is getting warm back there. So yeah. I gotta... <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jim Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. The content, information, opinions, and viewpoints contained in this podcast presentation are for educational purposes only. Some opinions expressed may represent those of the speaker and are based on their own clinical experience in their practice. This information is not meant or intended to serve as a substitute for a healthcare professional's clinical training, experience, or judgment. Guest speakers are paid consultants of Cook Medical. Always refer to the instructions for use for complete prescribing information, including indications for use, warnings, precautions, adverse events, and deployment instructions. 
Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year, I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days. 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up, and it got me thinking about Backtable. We are getting good, practical knowledge from our podcast, but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need, and that's what we're doing with Backtable Plus. Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts, and we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top. Yeah, in addition to getting this information in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with CME if I made this happen. There are three years worth of CME credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com and click the tab that says courses. And that's it. We also made a mobile app and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's app store as well. Couple more things. From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription, a great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Backtable Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top.